The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for what I hope will be a very timely discussion on all things ETFs. I'm delighted to have Dave Nadeg as my guest today. Dave is Vetify's financial futurist. Now, if you're wondering what that means, don't worry. I'm going to have Dave explain it in just a few moments. Uh, Dave has very deep experience in ETFs. His prior roles include CEO of ETF.com and Director of ETF Research at FactSet. Welcome, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. It is great to have you here today. So I was having a conversation yesterday with Andrew Beer at Dynamic Beta Investments, and I mentioned that you were my guest on the podcast today, and I just want to tell the audience what he had to say. He said, Dave is, and I'm going to quote here, the prophet of ETFs, because when anybody has a question about some really arcane ETF issue, Dave has an unbelievably elegant way of explaining it. So we're very fortunate to have you here today. Well, thank you. And I guess I now need to send Andrew a check. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive into the, the heart of the discussion, briefly tell us what it means to be a financial futurist at Vetify. Sure. So, you know, part of what we're trying to do at Vetify is to really help explain investing to investors, but also explain investors to the asset management community, really trying to sit in between that. Because look, we get it. There's a dizzying number of options for investors out there, new products coming to market every day. And at the same time, investors' needs are changing as the market changes. You know, we're talking about inflation now. We weren't three years ago. My role as a financial futurist is to sort of sit in the middle. And the way I think about what it means to be a futurist is I have to have a solid understanding of the past, not because I think we're going to relive it. I'm not a believer that we're, we're sort of on an endless spiral, uh, but I think we can learn a lot by the decisions people made about situations in the past because human nature is pretty universal. And then we have to understand the present at a really deep and I would say deconstructed level. I liken it to taking something like a typewriter and taking it apart so you can see every piece and look at it on a table and understand how they all fit together and then hopefully be able to put it back together so you can understand what it works, how it works as a system. And with those two pieces of context, I think you can then look at uh, the broader trends we see in markets, in demography, in politics, in social issues. Uh, and we can make some predictions about how markets and more importantly, how investors are going to behave in the coming years. So that's sort of my job is to, you know, really have the background of the past, really deconstruct the present and help people connect those dots for what may happen in the next three to five years. It's a very cool sounding job. You know, I was thinking, you know, if you want to learn more about, so say, stocks or bonds, you can sort of pick up a book and learn more. But you can't really sort of pick up a book on, you know, how to become a, a futurist. And I'm curious, I did see on your bio that you read very widely. Um, just give me some sort of sense of the, the types of areas of, of books that you read and to help you become a better futurist. 
Oh my goodness. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader. I think that would sort of be a minimum requirement for the job. Uh, I would say my, my non-business reading is, is mostly in the areas of philosophy, um, cognitive science. I'm fascinated by the sort of the nature of the human experience. Um, I dig deep into science whenever I can. I, I actually pay for a subscription to all of the nature journals. Uh, I can't say that I read or understand all of the uh, those sort of scientific articles that come out. But I think we can learn a lot from what's going on in the hard sciences. And then I sort of back that up by reading a lot of really what other people think of as boring stuff. I read a lot of uh, academic finance journal papers, um, particularly the new ones coming out from uh, sort of you know younger academics who maybe haven't gotten a piece in the Journal of Portfolio Management yet. Um, I think you can learn an awful lot by that cutting edge. You have to take it all with obviously a huge grain of salt. Uh, stuff that hasn't been peer reviewed can be full of holes. Uh, but I think that that process is really fascinating. Yep, and I think it's good for you know other investors to learn from from what your experience is to become better investors. And I think curiosity is definitely at the at the core of becoming a better investor and thinker. So let's spend a bit of time on this whole area of so so called complex products. As as you know, and I'm sure many in the audience know, the SEC recently gave the green light to funds that use derivatives to take a, a leveraged or inverse position on single securities, and that's sort of that the latest sort of complex product to come to market. But this comes on the heels of a, a lengthy caution that was issued by FINRA, and I believe it was in March of this year, you know, regarding access to these, quote, complex products and options, and I guess the dangers that they may pose to retail investors. So perhaps let's start there, you know, unbundle this whole sort of umbrella of complex products for us. And why is FINRA worried? And what could this mean for investors? Sure. So uh, it's worth pointing out that the the word complex, complex products doesn't have a real definition, not in a sort of a legal or regulatory sense in the U.S. Um, however, it gets bandied about by regulators pretty regularly. Most recently, as you pointed out, FINRA put out a request for comments, uh, RFC 2208 for anybody keeping score at home, uh, which they were basically asking the industry and anybody else who wanted to respond whether or not certain kinds of investment products should basically live in their own bucket called complex. And they scooped in as potential members of that, that cadre of complexity, um, not just things like we're going to talk about in a minute, these sort of leverage and inverse single stock products, although they certainly would apply. But they're talking about everything all the way down to basic target date mutual funds, effectively any exposure that is not obvious on the tin, what you're getting, which, you know, target date fund is constantly changing its positions. It has a glide path. It's a little bit more complex than say, just buying the S and P 500. So everything from there on into derivatives based products, leverage and inverse uh, smart beta products, they would all fall under this broad bucket. It's a, it's a similar regime or similar approach that other regulatory markets like the EU have taken. Um, there is a distinction in usage between uh, more complex products and less complex products. We don't have that in the United States. What we have is effectively a single standard. Either something is acceptable for everybody to own and trade, or it's part of what we would consider an accredited investor bucket, things like private placements or uh, hedge funds or LLCs. You often need to assert that you're an accredited investor or prove that you're an accredited investor. And there's a, there's a bucket of products that exist there, but that's it. That's all we have in the US. So if it's listed, if it's trading on an exchange or if you're sort of accessing it through your brokerage account, uh, it is an available product effectively for anybody who wants access to it. 
that obviously creates some concerns uh, among regulators because look, there are a lot of products out there that are doing a lot of wild things and not all of them are appropriate for every investor's need. And that creates an enormous education burden. And that's that's really, I think, where FINRA has expressed their interest. The SEC in approving the products we're talking about, these single stock products, actually had sort of, in my opinion, this unprecedented uh, sort of disagreement among staff publicly about whether these products should even be allowed. Um, we had, I think, two SEC commissioners effectively putting out private warnings saying, hey, these products are tricky. They're complex. Investors really need to be careful with them. But I guess we're approving them anyway. That was a bit of a shocker to me. And it's a shocker. So before we sort of go into sort of specific products, I just want to remind the audience. So if you have questions for Dave, please submit them in the Q&A feature. I'll be sure to leave some time at the end uh, for audience questions. So I think it's about just over three weeks since uh, Access Investments you know, debuted. I think it was eight ETFs um, that allow investors to use sort of leverage or, or investments on companies such as Tesla, NVIDIA, PayPal. Um, and my understanding, and correct me if this is wrong, Dave, is that you know leveraged inverse ETFs have already existed, um, and there are ETFs that target a specific like commodities such as crude oil or maybe gold. Uh, but the single stock ETFs are a new breed of fund. Is is that true? Is that yeah, correct? absolutely. They these types of products have existed elsewhere. They've been trading for a few years, for instance, on the London Stock Exchange, um, with it without issue. And and I'm going to say some pretty uh, not negative, but some concerned things about these types of products. I want to be really clear. They do what they say they're going to do on the tin. They already had the ones that are already trading here. They are, in fact, providing that negative or leveraged exposure exactly like they say they're going to. The products that have been trading in Europe have been doing exactly what they say they're going to do. And they're built on the same structure that the leveraged and inverse products here in the U.S. have been using for a decade or more. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, other folks may be familiar that you can get, you know, leveraged, you know, exposure to the NASDAQ 100 or the S&P 500. Those products just they've just been working fine. Right. There's really been no issues with them. Um, they're I, I would refer to them as extremely sharp tools in the drawer, meaning you got to be careful when you stick your hand in there so that you don't get cut. Um, they, they are you are obviously amplifying the volatility of whatever bet you're making here. Um, and and we as we've seen, you know, in recent markets, Things can change very, very quickly. So even something that isn't a single stock, like a short Qs or a short SPY type product, um, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. Markets are moving much more quickly than they used to on a day-to-day -day basis. You throw leverage on top of that, there is an opportunity to get yourself in trouble. So it sounds like very much buyer beware going there with your eyes wide open when you <laughs> go into this market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this, when you get into, you know, for I, I'll use the phrase geared products. That's borrowing that from our friends over the pond. Um, when you get into geared products like this, you absolutely need to know what you're doing. Um, it's not just that they enhance your volatility. Like, obviously, if you're getting 2x exposure to something and it goes up 10%, you make up 20%. That's great. Um, but that works against you. Also, if you hold these products for more than a single day, you're not going to get that headline exposure, meaning if you hold the, the leveraged Tesla product or, or the inverse Tesla product, which is a, a minus one product, and you hold that for, say, six months and Tesla is down 20 percent, it doesn't mean you're up 20 percent. It's very path dependent because these products rebalance their exposure every single day so that when you own it on the open, at the close, you have that, you know, minus one or one, you know, two X exposure, depending on which type of product you're in. 
Um, that path dependency, I think, confuses a lot of people. They're very much day trading tools. They're not long-term investments. So what's the uptake been like so far? So on the single stock products, we've got about 50 million-ish that's come in, um, which is you know not a, not a you know, huge launch out of the gate. Almost all of that exposure is in the, the Tesla Q product, which is the inverse Tesla product. It's minus one exposure. So Tesla goes up 10%, uh, you lose 10%. Tesla goes down percent, 10%, you make 10% on that day. Um, so they, they haven't taken the world by storm. Um, but that being said, there tends to be a bit of a, a sort of a breaking in process in these new trading tools. People want to understand that the markets are going to be there, um, that there's going to be good liquid two-sided markets because these are trading tools, not long-term investments. And that just takes a little bit of time. Clearly, the products are doing what they're supposed to do. They've, they're printing the NAVs correctly. People are getting the exposures they should be getting. They're trading relatively close to fair value all day long. There have been no issues in them. Um, but at the moment, we've only seen about 50 million show up. Okay. So I know that you're a futurist, Dave, but I'm going to ask you to sort of look in the rearview mirror for a, for a few moments. You know, we just, just through the first half of the year, and it's really been a, an unprecedented period of, you know, stocks and bonds have sold off and we've had inflation, interest rates have spiked. What happened to the ETF market in the midst of all of that? Um, so, you know, it's funny you ask what happened to the ETF market is the same thing that's happened to the ETF market in every downturn we've had since the first ETF launched in the early 90s. Uh, and that is every time the market sells off, people who are in expensive, generally underperforming, actively managed traditional mutual funds sell like crazy. And then they look for something to do with that money. That money tends to show up over on the ETF side of the balance sheet going towards very low cost indexed exposure, cheap beta, as we would say. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what's happened. So, so far year to date, looking at the end of July, we've had about $350 billion show up into the ETF market, putting us on track for close to a record year. Last year was, you know, gangbusters, but, you know, at the moment we would suggest we're going to be something like six or $700 million, a billion dollars showing up in the market. That's an incredibly positive flows year for ETFs. And it's been across the board. It's not just that folks are looking for safety. We've had $200 billion show up in equities, 140 of it in U.S. equities in the middle of this downturn. People keep allocating into ETFs, whether they're calling a bottom, whether they're making a reallocation. It, it's really every single category of ETFs has had net inflows this year so far. Really interesting. So how are investors, I guess, expressing their opinions about inflation via ETFs? We've seen a couple things. Initially, um, you know, and I think towards the beginning of the year when the market started selling off and the inflation print started getting really ugly, um, we saw a lot of interest in commodities and real estate. And I think that's pretty understandable. Um, that's really softened lately. At this point, we're, we're sort of about break even in terms of flows on commodities this year. We, we had had a gangbusters, I think, 40 or 50 billion come in. Uh, in the first and second quarter. So that's, that's, that's I think, faded off a little bit. Um, I think investors who made that call right did very well. Obviously, we had a big run-up in energy um, around the, the, you know, the activity in Ukraine. Um, you know, an unfortunate reason to have a rally in anything, but, but it is what it is. Um, and so I think a lot of investors used ETFs, particularly commodities ETFs, as a way to sort of, quote-unquote, play the headlines around that. 
that's sort of fallen off a little bit. I think there's not quite this belief that we're in a huge commodity super cycle of inflation. A lot of those commodities inflation based prints are now actually much lower. Things like, you know, just the price of gasoline in the country has come down dramatically. So I think the bloom is off that rose a little bit. What we're seeing, I think that's a little more long lasting is really a focus on, um, on, on income and dividends. So we've seen a lot of interest in things like high yield and investment grade bonds, a lot of focus on dividend based products. Um, and I think what folks are really looking for is a way to get income that's going to exceed inflation. So I, you know, I'd highlight something like, uh, like JP Morgan's got an equity income product called JEPI, J-E-P-I, that's been very popular with investors, you know, recently started, uh, you know, printing yields near 14%. Obviously that's going to be very attractive to folks that are just hunting for that income. And if that income exceeds the perceived inflation number, well, that seems like a gift right now. So we're seeing a lot of folks chasing those types of products. I'd be cautious of chasing any product with a headline yield. I think you need to really look under the hood and see whether it's what you want to invest in. But that idea of looking towards sustainable dividend strategies, the corners of the bond market that are going to be most able to uh, sort of profit from the new yield environment that we're in, that seems to be where investors are focused. So you know, it's obviously not surprising that investors are chasing yield in the environment, but I'm wondering what, if anything, surprised you about choices that investors were making in, in the past six months? Um, well, you know, I actually, I give, I give investors a little bit of credit here. Uh, I, I actually sort of expected a little bit more selling than we saw. Um, as much as I'm sitting here telling this positive story about ETFs are always the the recipient of all of this money every time we have a downturn, um, I think investors were actually very smart here. Um, the, you know, you can, whether or not, you know, the class of investors who use ETFs called the bottom, that might be a bit aggressive, but the allocations we saw seemed to make a lot of sense to me, right? Moving into, in, you know, uh, you know, floating rate bonds in the, this environment, which have been very popular, a fairly sensible move. The way money moved in and out of the commodities market uh, around uh, the, the trading we saw around Ukraine, again, seemed very sensible to me. So that surprised me. I think the other thing that's really surprised me, we had a, an article on Vetify uh, from Elizabeth Kashner at FACSA, a guest piece um, a few weeks ago, where she teased apart flows by style. And by style, we mean things like, are you a vanilla fund? Are you a momentum fund? Are you an active fund? Those kinds of things, a little bit softer definition. And when you break things out into that bucket, sort of mid-year, the vanilla funds, the ones we think of as being the stalwarts in the ETF industry, the SPYs and the Qs, you know, low, low cost, very explainable, very straightforward beta, they actually had net outflows during that first half of the year. And the big winners were things like multi-factor funds, actively managed funds, buy right strategies, options caller strategies. So slightly more interesting product line. So investors really were using the tools at their disposal and not just blindly buying cheap beta over and over again. That was a surprise. It is surprising. Uh, I've also read, or maybe I heard this, that managed futures products are up something like thirty or forty percent this year so far. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a, you have to be a little bit careful because they don't they don't perform exactly the same. That's part of why you get them. That's the M in the managed futures, mm -hmm. right? These tend to be actively managed products. You mentioned Andrew Beer's product, that's DBMF yeah. coming from Dynamic Beta, um, just absolutely crushing it this year. Um, now, again, I'd be very cautious of investors chasing something that's already up 30 or 40 percent on the year. But I think folks are starting to learn this lesson that diversification is more than just buying more stocks or more bonds. Having a strategy that's going to sort of move counter cyclically to the rest of your portfolio can be really important. So 
uh, you know, sort of towards the end of last year, um, you know, I, I had been doing a bunch of works with the folks like at Wisdom Tree. They have a product called NTSX, which is designed to sort of use a little bit of leverage to create portfolio space. It's basically a leverage 60-40 allocation with the idea that you own less of stocks and bonds by owning this and use some of that freed up capital to buy things like managed futures products like DBMF. Um, that's been a really positive and I think a really effective strategy that we've seen a lot of advisors um, using so-called coding capital efficiency is the sort of the buzzwording around that. Um, and, and I think that's really smart, right? That moving into to more diversification, not just your stock and bond portfolio, but a slug of managed futures or a commodities index exposure, a slug of gold, maybe even exploring some of the non-profitable tech sector uh, or you know even the cryptocurrency sector, which is no longer in favor. All of those things can have diversification benefits if you have a really clear eye about it. Well, speaking of, I guess, the non-profitable growth sector, I feel like we can't have a conversation about ETFs and, and not mention Kathy Wood's ARC. So <laughs> what's going on there? Give us the update and <laughs> what do you, how well, you think about ARC. I'm not sitting in their offices in St. Pete, but, <laughs> but, but I will tell you what we've seen. Um, you know, historically, when you have a hot hand manager who, who has an extraordinary run of performance, which, you know, Kathy and her team absolutely have in a very transparent way. Uh, you know, I'm sort of a fan of the transparency and the evangelism they have for their approach. Obviously, a lot of other folks were too and put a ton of money into those strategies over the last couple of years. Normally, you would expect when the performance rolls over, when there's a little bit of mean reversion, you expect all that money to flow out. And that's certainly we've seen that in the mutual fund industry over and over again, going all the way back to the dot-com era when it happened to the fund I was running. Um, so it, it is just the pattern we expect to see. The team at ARC seems to have broken that mold. Um, throughout the sort of downturn that they've had in performance here for the last six months or so, they just continue to pull in assets. So I think that there is a belief behind the way they're managing money that supersedes the short-term results. That's surprising to me, but actually I see that as a good sign because if you're still throwing money into a strategy that is underperforming, that means you've hopefully really done your homework and understand what you're buying and you still believe in the strategy. That seems to be the arc story, that the, the folks who are investing with them are not just chasing performance. They're actually true believers. Uh, I, I think that that's better. I think that people will have better results by certainly buying in when something's down 40% than waiting to the top and buying with momentum with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned crypto and the crash there. You know, what are you seeing on the, on the crypto side? ETF world. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by what's going on in crypto. I sort of separate the Bitcoin issue from the rest of crypto. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of headlines about will we, won't we get a, a, a Bitcoin ETF? Grayscale's going now suing the SEC to try to allow them to convert GBTC, which is their uh, not ETF uh, exchange traded trust that holds Bitcoin. It, it makes for a lot of interesting headlines. I don't think it's actually going to be a meaningful discussion for at least another 18 months. I don't, there's no chance, in my opinion, that we're going to get some sort of surprise approval and all of a sudden you can buy a Bitcoin ETF. Um, however, there's a lot of other interesting stuff going on in the decentralized finance world that I think is going to start showing up in the ETF market one way or another. Um, whether you're just looking at the digital asset space and looking at various ways of getting companies there, um, there are a ton of products there. Um, you know, Vetify has an indexing business that has some indexes based on the digital asset space. I think there's a lot of room still to grow there. 
the pullback doesn't concern me all that much. I think it's very much a natural part of these technology solutions to have these sort of, you know, incredible ramps of excitement and then, you know, a bit of a shakedown where you sort of realize what's real and what's not. We've seen this with biotech. We've seen this with Internet stocks. Uh, we've even seen this with things like commodities approaches in the past, right? When you have these sort of bubbles of enthusiasm, it's inevitable that you're going to have shakedowns. The message to investors would be just understand why you're investing in something. There's, there's Don't let FOMO be the driver here. If you want to get into the space and you're interested in it, do your homework. Really get in there. Learn what's cool. Understand where the risks are and then invest prudently. And I think you can still do that in crypto. Don't just you know go grab an NFT that somebody said was hot and throw a bunch of money on it. That's not investing. That's just playing. So you mentioned the crypto headlines. It makes me think of uh, another area that's had a lot of headlines recently. In fact, I've got the, the Economist's copy from, I think it was last week, on my desk uh, sort of with ESG in, in bold letters. Um, you know, ESG has uh, had a pretty rough year in terms of uh, press uh, from within, from without. And I'm wondering, I'd love to get your views on, on where you see ESG at the moment, um, how, how flows have been from your perspective, and where you think ESG is going to sort of emerge after the sort of period of, of questioning and perhaps a little bit of skepticism. Yeah, I think we're, we're at a bit of a definitional crossroads. Um, ESG is a little bit like smart beta in that you can't usually get two people at a cocktail party to even agree what you're talking about. Um, and so I think that the pullback we've seen in ESG interests, if you measure it by flows, um, is, is completely rational. Um, I think that the discussions we're having around whether uh, you know a particular approach is pure enough or is actually ESG or is too ESG or is too controversial, that's the right conversation to be having. Uh, in terms of the state of play, you know, we're basically flat on flows in ESG products this year after a couple of really good years in the ETF space. It's still very nascent. We're not talking hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars here. It's still a pretty small part of flows. Um, but the pressure on ESG investing isn't coming from individual ETF retail investors. It's coming from uh, huge institutions who often have baked in ESG or sustainability mandates, it tends to be much more about climate than sort of social and governance issues. It's coming from sovereign funds uh, around the world who have an enormous weight in the marketplace. And it's coming from wealthy families investing through their advisors. There's been a lot of demand pull from family offices, from large wealthy investors to make their investments more values focused, whatever that means to that individual. Um, and when that kind of money comes to market, it tends to come in not so much in a packaged product that may come from a BlackRock or a State Street or a Vanguard, and more often into an individualized portfolio, usually through something like a direct index or a separately managed account. So the, the pressure on ESG as an investment thesis is not going away. I think what we've seen is a bit of a retail pullback in interest. And I think some legitimate skepticism about what is ESG and what is not ESG. Hopefully the end state is investors who are interested in that values focused style of investing, ask themselves the right questions. What am I trying to do with that money? Am I trying to simply not own things that make me uncomfortable? Or am I actually trying to engender change in an environmental cause, a social cause? Um, and I think those are the right questions. I don't think ESG is going anywhere. I think we're just in a redefinition phase. Mm -hmm. So Dave, I think you started back in the business back in, I think it was in 92, is that right? Yeah, so I 92, I moved to um, what was then Wells Fargo Nico Investment Advisors. Before that, I was running a small consulting firm 
which is now called Cerulea Associates. I started that with Kurt um, right mm -hmm. at the beginning of that decade uh, and it's sort of been in and out of the ETF industry ever since. So you must have seen a lot of evolution and change uh, over the last three decades. And I'm wondering if you can put your sort of financial futurist hat on. And I'm wondering, what's the next frontier for ETFs? You know, what are you excited about? What launches do you see coming down the pike? You know, what's next? Oh, boy, great question. So, uh, you know, I think that the most interesting thing, and I'm going to I'm going to back up your question a little bit. I think just the most interesting in investing, whether ETFs are part of it or not, um, is going to be the continued tokenization of asset management. Um, now, there's, there are easy ways to think about that. Um, like ETFs themselves are, in fact, a kind of token ownership of these portfolios of stocks. So ETFs have largely been successful because they have created a way of trading this sort of token we call a portfolio easily and fungibly throughout the system. Um, but what we've seen in the DeFi space is that when you really get to tokenization, when you actually make the token a, a sort of a bearer instrument, which is what happens in the crypto space, there's all sorts of more interesting things that you can do. Um, I think it's going to happen in boring parts of the market first. Uh, so it won't be the big, sexy headlines around all these projects we read, you know, on Coinbase or on Coindesk or whatever. It's going to be in things like issuing, cor issuing corporate debt on blockchains. It's gonna be things like what Vanguard's doing, uh, managing their index rebalances with a private blockchain. Those types of activities actually start removing more and more friction from the system uh, and, and ultimately reduce costs for investors, increase access to new forms and patterns of return with the enormous caveat that the closer and closer you get to something that is truly a bearer instrument, i.e. I've got it in my hands and I own it, and if I lose it, it's gone forever, uh, that puts more and more onus on the customer, the investor, to really understand what they own and how they own it, what context they own it. Is it a Schwab account? Is it something they have in a personal wallet? Is it through an advisor and a custodian account? Those are going to be the interesting issues I think we talk about for some time. The other one that I'd throw in there is corporate governance. Um, this sort of ties in with the ESG conversation. A lot of discussion now about how individual investors influence the companies that they own, generally through pooled vehicles like ETFs. There's currently a, a piece of uh, legislation on that I don't think will go anywhere called the Index Act, which would actually sort of strip out individuals' ability to vote unless they do it directly, meaning unless I tell, say, BlackRock exactly how I want them to vote on this specific Tesla item, then my vote doesn't count at all. That's going to be a conversation we have for the next couple of years about the rights of individual shareholders in their pooled products. I don't think that I don't think the jury is even in the room yet on where that's going to end up. But I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. We're almost out of time, but I'm squeezing one or two uh, audience questions. Uh, one from Dan, who says, why would a single stock ETF be better than just buying the stock itself? Well, so if you, all you're trying to do is get sort of one to one exposure, I'm putting a thousand bucks to work and I want to own a thousand dollars of Tesla, then the single stock ETF does nothing for you. Um, the single stock ETF can be a useful tool, for instance, if you, instead of being long Tesla, you want to be a little bit short Tesla. You want to make a negative bet on Tesla going into earnings. Now, the other way you could do that would be to go get a locate, to go get stock to borrow for, through your broker and short it directly. The reason that's a problem is generally that's expensive. Um, you're going to pay for the, the, the privilege of borrowing that stock. There's a rebate you'll owe. You'll have to have a margin account, which means your account may not even be able to do that today. 
Um, and you theoretically can lose more than all your money. Right? That's how shorting works, right? Is you're now on the hook for the upward performance of Tesla. And if it triples tomorrow, you've just wiped out your account. Uh, that's a kind of risk a lot of investors don't want to take. Uh, I know it's a little weird to say that a selling point of a product is you can only lose all your money, uh, but that is one of the selling points of these inverse products. And on the upside, it's a capital efficiency argument. Again, if you're making a short-term trade to say play Tesla's earnings, not to beat on Tesla here, um, or Nike's earnings, you can go get that 2X exposure. And if you've only got $5,000 to put to work and you've got the strength of your convictions, you can get the $10,000 of exposure. Of course, it means if you get it wrong, you're also gonna lose twice the amount of money you would have otherwise. And just a final question from Hal, uh, your question, your, I guess your thoughts on treasury ETFs. So, you know, any any bucket of fixed income tends to do quite well in an ETF bucket. Uh, so, you know, treasury ETFs are a fantastic way to get that exposure. There's nothing wrong with owning treasuries directly. I know a lot of folks in the advisor community that do still build things like treasury ladders to sort of get income off, uh, you know, get, get, to get income out of the fixed income market. Uh, I guess the only caveat I would have there is really understand what your trade-offs are, right? There's a very big difference between being in a 20-year targeted treasury ETF and an actively managed ETF that's got a you know target duration of seven or eight and a short-term treasury ETF that's really trying to be more of like a cash-like vehicle. There's a lot of variation here. Um, it is a place we see a lot of folks looking to active managers, whether that's in an ETF wrapper or a mutual fund wrapper. Um, so the, the, the structure works great for it, but I just don't assume that all treasury ETFs are the same. Great. We'll have to leave it there. Unfortunately, Dave, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. Thanks so much, Dave, for joining me today. Uh, we hope you can join us again tomorrow. Kel Inman, founder and CEO of Climate Check, will discuss climate change risk mitigation in real estate with Mansion Global reporter Leslie Hendrickson. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.